When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Association with a homosexual journalist is not something we will embrace. Shame on you. Little gay Kiwis. Regards, Jane O'Brien Media. It was hard to take the insult seriously, considering the sport did seem slightly... Gay. Hey, everybody, this is Represent, and I'm your host, Aisha Harris. I hope you all are doing your best to stay cool in these summer months here in NYC. It's been friggin' hot and humid out here, so it hasn't been all that fun, but I'm glad to be here now with you and excited as well because today we've got an exceptionally weird episode for you. A bit later in the show, I chat with New Zealand journalist-turned-filmmaker David Ferrier about his documentary Tickled, which you just heard a clip of at the top of the show. As you may or may not have guessed, it's about the world of competitive endurance tickling. David, who was bi, was attacked for sexuality by a mysterious person behind the tickling video production company Jane O'Brien Media after inquiring about their business, and it only gets stranger from there. But first, I brought along a guest host today— Someone who is one of my nearest and dearest friends, who's known me since we were both awkward middle schoolers in seventh grade Spanish class, and is currently the assistant of comedian Kathy Griffin and one half of the web series comedy duo, A Brit and a Yank. He's the Yank. John Rafael Oliveira. Hello. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so proud of you. And yes, we go way back. (laughs) We go back like babies with pacifiers. (laughs) And you joined me all the way in California uh, via Skype. And I appreciate your waking up early. At least it'd be early to me. I think it's like eight o'clock there right now, right? In the morning? Yes, it's early here, but anything for you. Aw, thank you. So, John, you, I don't think you've seen Tickled, but have you, you're familiar with it, right? I have not seen Tickled. I didn't even know competitive tickling was a thing until I saw the trailer, and the trailer gave me chills. Yeah. First of all, setting aside the sort of fetishistic aspect of it, just the idea of it just makes my skin crawl because I hate being tickled. Like, it's the worst feeling in the world. Oh, yeah. I I don't really know who loves to be tickled, but I I mean, it's not a comfortable thing. And and that part alone of the trailer was scary. Just just the fact that people like be tied up and be tickled really like makes gives me goosebumps. Yeah. And so (laughs) setting aside uh, tickled, we're going to talk about something that is equally sort of uh, very weird in terms of the way it deals with sex and and 
race and and gender. The movie, the new movie, the animated romp, the animated food romp, I should say, Sausage Party, that uh, is written, co-written by Seth Rogen and stars a bunch of Seth Rogen adjacent famous people like Michael Sarah and uh, and Kristen Wiig. And that's been a big box, been both a box office hit, but also a source of controversy due to some of its more touchy themes, especially having to do with race and a particular sex or really sort of rape scene. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, would you like to just talk a bit about your show, A Brit and a Yank, and describe to our listeners what what it is? It's just a little web series on YouTube with uh, one of my best friends. His name is James. He's the Brit. And we just tackle a variety of different topics from, you know, award shows to Brexit to Harry Potter. We just did a huge mockumentary on the Spice Girls. I saw that. (laughs) So much. It means a lot when any anyone that knows us watches our crazy videos because we're a little too old to be doing this, but we love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the the Spice Girls mockumentary is it's like. 20 minutes on YouTube, but, but it's it's worth it if you, like us, grew up as millennials loving the Spice Girls. It takes you way back. It's for anyone that grew up in that time and can appreciate girl power. <laughs> so moving on, Sausage Party, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is the R-rated animated comedy. And it seems to prove yet again that this summer especially... More so than bloated franchises, original ideas are where it's at when it comes to drawing in audiences and critics. And this is very much, in many ways, an original story. In it, Seth Rogen plays a sausage residing in a grocery store with other sausages and food items. And he discovers that the quote-unquote great beyond that they've all been promised, which is supposed to be sort of like heaven or some version of an afterlife, is not what they thought. And when they're purchased by humans, they should not be excited. They should be terrified because they are going to be consumed and murdered. So you have learned the terrible truth. I gotta tell everyone. No one will believe you. I have to try. Everyone will die otherwise. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's it's very funny. The, the trailer is hilarious. The movie itself is very, very funny. Um, and what he tries to do, what his character tries to do is he tries to convince all the other food items and his girlfriend, which is played, who is played by or voiced by Kristen Wiig and is a hot dog bun. Uh, (laughs) he must prove to them that there is no great beyond and they must free themselves from human consumption. What were your thoughts? Like, what were your initial thoughts on the film? I mean, first of all, anytime I walk into a supermarket now, I'm going to think twice. (laughs) I guess I really think about the bigger picture. I had no idea how like much the supermarket kind of reflects our world in that sense. But uh, yes, was the, was the movie offensive? Absolutely. Was I offended? No, but I could definitely see why people were by certain parts. But it, it's entertainment. It was funny. Um, now, like having seen it a few days ago, it's kind of, things are kind of starting to sit with me and it, and it gets me to think. And I think any piece of entertainment that gets you to think about the world, about your place in the world is kind of a good thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, let's talk a little bit about what the controversial aspects of it are. We can start off first with uh, the the sort of racist... er, (laughs) Wow, I just called it racist. I don't... So here's the thing is, I don't know if I would consider it racist, but there are definitely some racial aspects of it that may not sit well with folks. And... Among them is the fact that they pretty they very unabashedly just take on these very simple ethnic jokes. So all of the all the food sort of aligns with what 
<laughs> what their associated culture might be in real life or what it is in real life. So Salma Hayek plays a taco. <laughs> and a taco. A lesbian taco, yes. And <laughs> Craig Robinson is grits. <laughs> and Bill Hader uh, plays, among many other characters, Firewater, which is uh, an alcoholic beverage. But he plays fire. He plays a Firewater is a also a Native American sort of caricature. So there are issues with that. Mm, so did you? You are a a person of Latino heritage. You are Brazilian. And, you know, I we've talked many times. We've we've gone back and forth. We've done our own sort of banter on our own time of ethnic humor. But what do you think about that sort of thing playing out in a movie of this stature? Well, I mean, the good thing is everyone is equally offended and they play up every single stereotype. But, you know, as a Latino, yeah, I mean, it's kind of upsetting when you see in the movie that like the Latinos are all drunk in, you know, a cantina sort of place and lazy and kind of illegal and not supposed to be there. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that actually think of, think that way about Latinos in real life. So why not expose that? Why not get the conversation going? Um, and I mean, the, the one that I, I'm not even Native American, but I thought that one would be the most offensive. Yeah, that definitely seems to me to be the most blatantly offensive especially since and you know my myself and Alex Jung the vulture writer last week talked a little bit about this when we discussed Bojack Horseman and and casting non-white or casting white people as the voices of non-white characters and we have Bill Hader a comedian who I love and think he's amazing in everything and and I think he's one of the best comedians we have now nowadays he plays a bunch of racist stereotypes and he's a white guy he's credited uh, at least on wikipedia as tequila and el guaco a guacamole gangster (laughs) (laughs) and all i can think is they couldn't find someone else besides selma hayek to play latino characters if we're going to do these stereotypical latino characters it just there's something about it that does kind of rub me the wrong way. And in the moment, I must admit, like, it didn't bother me that much. I think partially because I actually didn't even know that Bill Hader was voicing these characters. I knew Salma Hayek because her voice is pretty... Very distinct. It's very distinct. So there's there's an article that went up on Salon recently uh, by Nico Lang. And I will preface this by saying that I actually am an acquaintance of his. I've never actually met him, but we've communicated on social media and I'm familiar with his work. Um... But he wrote a piece in Salon about Sausage Party's quote-unquote race problem. And at first I was thinking, you know, why do we have to take this so seriously? It's part of me wanted to really embrace this movie because I'm kind of a a Seth Rogen fan and I pretty much enjoy everything he's in, even when I criticize some of the things he does. And he doesn't always get it perfectly right. He's had other... He can you can look back on many of the films, especially his earlier films that sort of teeter on homophobia and and had some mishaps. Yeah, he's had some mishaps and he's talked openly about them in more recent years, especially when Neighbors 2 came out this year. He talked about how he was more conscious of of making a film that spoke uh, openly about feminism and making it with women in mind instead of strictly from his straight male point of view. But with Sausage Party... It feels like it kind of goes in the opposite direction the more I think about it. And I do kind of agree with Nico's points that 
the equal opportunity idea isn't doesn't necessarily hold water in a case like this because the jokes are there and the stereotypes are there but then i i want to know like what what is what is the commentary there is the joke really on white people or is it on the people that it's caricaturing and i'm not sure that the line is so clear there no i completely agree with you the line isn't clear and you're right the more i thought about it it was funny in the moment but then afterward i was like what did that accomplish like did anyone really get redemption in that movie not really and i actually and i don't know if it was that article but it said that all the all the writers of the film were white and again that is a problem mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that way if, if especially when they're going to deal with you know different cultures different ethnicities different races it's extremely important to you know go outside your own little self-contained zone and bring in as many people as you can because you're going to see things differently. And and the thing is, is that another thing that Nico points out in his piece is, is that he did, Seth Rogen actually did sort of consult people outside of his, his group. He's gone on record and saying, you know, after some early testing, like a screen test of the film, uh, Craig Robinson's character was supposed to be not Grits, or maybe he was Grits, but then another character he was supposed to play was Uncle Tom's Rice, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm laughing and crying and dying inside. Uh, it's it's uh, the the idea that th- that we were going to play with something like that, a very controversial and painful figure from and, and Uncle Tom. Tom products still exist, just like Aunt Jemima products still exist. But I and but apparently early test audiences didn't like it, and so clearly they knew that they were pushing some buttons in some way. And I don't think they went far enough. And and what makes it even more sort of disappointing is the fact that in almost every other area, the film is super sharp and smart about, especially the way it handles religion. Oh, and absolutely. the concept of religion, the fact that it, I don't I, I don't think it comes down too hard. It comes it comes down hard on organized religion. But I think it also doesn't fault people for clinging to religion in a way. No, absolutely. Me being religious. Um, yeah, I could I could see, oh, this film is probably written by an atheist. Um, but at the same time, it kind of welcomes all beliefs and yet makes fun of being a believer in the same way, but it, it's it's not a bad thing. Another thing about Sausage Party that I'm ashamed to say I also did not pick up on, or at least it happened and I didn't really pay much attention to it, which shows sometimes how, you know, laughter can just cover up all of my, cloud all my judgment in the middle of a film. <laughs> it's okay if you miss something. There's a lot of laughing. Uh, and so there's a scene, there's a Huffington Post article that recently went up titled, Why the Rape Scene in Sausage Party Wasn't Funny. And I ran across it while doing a little bit of research on Sausage Party, and I thought to myself, rape scene? I don't remember being a rape scene in Sausage Party. And then I read the article, and I thought to myself, oh, <laughs> there was. And there, were, there was sort of a rape scene, and I just didn't pick up on it, or I didn't really think about it that deeply. And that scene happens when, and we haven't mentioned this character yet, but there is a character voiced by Nick Kroll, who is named Douche. <laughs> He is a actual douche. <laughs> like all of these food stuffs are, they are they are 
the things they are, their names. So Taco is Taco, and and Kristen Wiig's character is Buns because she's a hot dog bun. No, I'm sorry. Kristen Wiig actually gets a name. Her name is Brenda Bunsen. The Bunsen, yes. <laughs> but so there's a character voiced by Nick Kroll, and he's sort of the villain. He's the sort of be villain because the humans are the the main culprit but he's a villain and he's a douche and he's he's after the sausage and his hot dog bun for revenge and so the douche while on his journeys gets thrown into a trash bin but not everything makes it in a trash bin and so he runs across this juice box that's lying on the ground and the juice box can't do anything it's it's been used it's it's done and in order to somehow by some weird twisted logic to gain some power or to gain strength a the douche uh basically performs a some sort of oral <laughs> oral sex on this juice box and gets its strength and the juice box can't do anything about it what did you think of that scene when you were watching it? I mean, I'm actually kind of shocked that you missed it because it's definitely the one scene that stuck with me. And it was, you know, when the music goes down and they really focus in on the scene. You're actually, I'm actually not sure if the juice box was male or female, but um, it's it's kind of... It's gross. It's, it's gross. There's really no way to say it. It's, it's disgusting and it's, it's, actually, it's actually offensive. Like, I... I could have it could have done without that scene and then I don't know if you remember but there's actually no consequence or redemption for the victim and there's no consequence for the 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 rapist it's just it just happens and then he moves on with his life and they never talk about it again right and as this Huffington Post article reminds me the he says the douche says while he's doing this act if you say anything no one will believe you which is like what <laughs> And, and, and I, okay, again, I don't know how, maybe I just block this out of my, like, self, self selected this and blocked it out of my memory, uh, because I did not remember that part. But it is, it's clearly that, I think part of the problem is that A, there's a huge ring of truth to it. But there's, but there's a ring of truth to that. And the fact that the joke is on her. The joke is on on her, and I think it's a her. They, they don't really think or her. it's on it. Yeah. And like I've said, the thing about this movie is that it does some really, really questionable and terrible things. But then it also, in many other ways, especially when it comes to religion, is very progressive. And at the end of the movie, there, after everyone has seen the light and decided, no, we're not going to try to get to the great beyond and said we're going to attack all the humans spoiler and 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 live our own free lives without going into the great beyond then it's all of a sudden everyone is free to to have sex <laughs> and so there's a giant food orgy and all of the every every single I mean, every single piece of food in that grocery store, regardless of whether they are coded as male or female, is having sex with every other part. And they talk about different holes and all these other things. Now, have you have you ever seen anything like that before in an animated movie, John? An animated movie? Heavens no. Talk about sensory overload. There was so much happening in that scene that I, I'm sure I missed 
a lot of it because there are, I mean, fruits having sex with vegetables, donuts like being penetrated. There was, I, I, I mean, obviously the hot dog bun and the sausage were having their fun. Yeah, but then the the hot dog bun and the taco were also having their fun. Oh yeah, I mean that that taco was waiting all movie for that, but. <laughs> I can't, like, the only thing I can kind of equate it to would be the orgy scene from uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's movie, Eyes Wide Shut, like, mm. and and that was tame compared to this. <laughs> like, I, I've i never really seen something like that on film, and I guess they can't really do that anywhere because it was an animated film, so I, I don't know. I mean, I I don't even know what to say about it. I'm still kind of, you know, blushing about it. And with that, we will end that conversation there. Our, uh, up next, I will be talking about a different weird, at least weird to me, sexual experience with David Ferrier from Tickled. But first, John, l- I'd love to hear your plus or delta, plus and delta for the week. What felt to you like something that was great in terms of representation? And what do you think could have used a little bit more work. Sure. I guess my plus for the week would be um, Simone Manuel being the first African-American woman to win an individual Olympic gold medal. Woot! Just, yeah, exactly. Like, woot, congratulations. She's an amazing girl. I think the plus for that is just it's always good to see any kind of minority breaking a stereotype. And obviously that stereotype is black people can't swim. And she just shattered that. So, Thanks, Simone. And I think any child that's watching her is going to, you know, really feel like they can do it, whether they're black, white or, you know, any race. And what do you think needed a little bit more work? Well, I was kind of bummed, even though I'll I'll, like rightfully admit that I've never actually watched the show. I was upset that the Larry Wilmore was canceled. That was going to be my Delta. This is the the second week in a row where (laughs) we are sharing Delta's. But yes, sorry, continue. No, I just think... um, I just think it's it takes away another person of color on late night television, which, as you know, is completely dominated by men. And there is one female and there's one gay man on on uh, late night television. And just because you have one, it doesn't mean that it that it's that it's over. Like just because you have Trevor Noah doesn't mean that, you know, there can't be more black people hosting a late night show doesn't mean there can't be more women hosting a late night show. So anytime that a show like this goes away, even if I don't watch it, just knowing that it's there is helpful. Yeah, I that was also going to be my Delta. I completely agree with everything you said. I think that he tapped into something that was definitely missing. And it really kind of, it, I, I in a weird way, I kind of just wish that if it had, we didn't have to cling so desperately to the show having left and i think that problem is not him i think the problem is the fact like you said that we only have one now we only have trevor noah and we only have samantha b as the only female voice in late night right now yeah it's, i mean chelsea technically is on netflix but yeah i mean you can <laughs> it's still not enough it's still not enough and they're not on they're they're on cable they weren't on the major networks and you have andy cohen on bravo but it's just not enough. Just because you have one doesn't mean we're done. We need to keep going. We need to keep, we need to give shows a chance, especially shows with minority hosts. For sure. And I will share my, my plus for this week is a Hollywood Reporter cover story that just came out and it features Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay in a interview together about their new show that is being produced uh, by 
Ava DuVernay and Oprah on Oprah's network own. And it's called Queen Sugar. It's based on a novel of the same name. And I've watched the first three episodes and I really, really love it. It's great. It stars Rutina Wesley from True Blood as well as a few other very amazing black actors. Uh, but the the interview is just really, really enlightening. And they talk about inclusion versus diversity. And it's not the first time that Ava DuVernay has talked about inclusion as a as a preferable word to the term diversity. But it really stuck with me this time. And I'm it's made me want to her her definition of inclusion is is the idea that instead of advocating for diverse stories and diversity, we should advertise for everyone having a seat at the table. And we should be focusing on that that's what we should be focusing on and not this this sort of more blah version, this blah word of diversity. And, and that's what we should be moving towards. And I think I'm going to try my best to make inclusion part of my vocabulary more so than, than diversity, because I, I do agree with that idea that <clears throat> diversity like has lost its meaning in a way. And I'm not sure what it means anymore. And I think inclusion speaks more directly to just the idea of giving everyone a fair shot and letting everyone have the same opportunities. So that is my plus for the week. I'm You should check it out. It's on Hollywood Reporter. And thank you so much for coming on the show this week, John. I'm so happy to have you on and can't wait to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for having me. And you're already doing a lot for inclusion. So thank you for having this podcast. Oh, thank you. Earlier this summer, a very weird documentary came out called Tickled. It's a film that takes a look at the bizarre world of competitive endurance tickling videos via New Zealand journalist David Ferrier, whose amused curiosity in this ritual quickly morphed into a twisted investigation of homophobic cyberbullying, fraud, and manipulation. Think the MTV reality series Catfish, but with a twist. Ferrier initially attempted to reach out to the person behind the videos, Jane O'Brien Media, but was met with hostile insults about his sexuality and defensive rebuttals. Along with co-director Dylan Reeve, Ferrier discovers that a long trail of abuse and scams have been left behind by a mysterious manipulative figure, and he soon winds up representing an unlikely group. Thanks for joining me today, David, and welcome. No, thanks for having me. First, I would love for you to explain to our listeners exactly what competitive tickling is and what it looks like. Yeah, it's a reasonable question, and it's a question that I sort of addressed a couple of years ago when I found it online. It's you know, it's a tickling competition um, by the you know from any sort of outside view. Uh, there's a company, Jane and Brian Media. They've got a website. They've got a Facebook page, and if you go there. You can watch these tickling competitions and young men aged between 18 and 24 are flown into L.A. once a month. All expenses paid, so their flights are paid for. Uh, they get $1,500 cash. They put on Adidas gear and they tickle each other. One of them is tied down and the others are on top of him tickling. And, you know, they want new recruits all the time because apparently it's a very popular sport. So who is the audience? I mean, I guess people who are really into tickling. Is yeah, well, it's sort, of, it's sort of pitched as this endurance sport, which is kind of also part of maybe a reality TV show they're trying to make. Mm. So the idea is you're flowing in and it's like, how long can you last? You know, you get paid good money 
and you'll just go into like tickle teams and you'll tickle each other for as long as you can. And you know, these videos were all online. You know, there are hundreds of them on, you know, Jane O'Brien's Vimeo page and YouTube page. So I was in New Zealand, you know, I'm an entertainment reporter in New Zealand and I was looking for like another wacky story to do. And I thought, hey, you know, I've heard of Ultimate Frisbee. I've heard of, you know, a range of strange sports, but tickling kind of takes the cake. So you you stumble upon this and mm. and then in the, in the beginning of the movie, you, you, you reach out to them and you want to do the story on it. Yeah. And instead of getting, you know, a, sure, come, come interview us or no, we don't want to be interviewed, you get these like weird – Homo- very homophobic uh, emails. Yeah, it was it was really strange because I, you know, I just went to their public Facebook wall and said, you know, I'm a New Zealand journalist and I see that some New Zealanders have been flown to LA and they're taking part in this competition. I'd love to talk to you. And the reply I got from Jane O'Brien's PR person was basically, we don't want to deal with a homosexual journalist, which was so strange because the sport, when you look at it, you can't help but think it's it's quite gay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I say this in the doco because it's, you know, it's fit, good-looking young men tickling. And you can't help but watch it and think that it's a bit homoerotic. You know, one of them's tied down. There's like five other guys on top of them tickling them. Right. And so to get this homophobic response was so unusual because I assume they'd be okay with anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird. I still look at it and think it's weird. Well, can you can you describe it like what is the what is the general attitude towards uh, the LGBT community in New Zealand? Is it is it comparable it's, to here or yeah? It's it's pretty. I think it's probably a bit more liberal. I mean, America is so ridiculously complex with you know it's fifty states and everything. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's I can't keep up. But New Zealand is generally quite liberal. You know, gay marriage is legal. You know, you can you can marry, you know, a, a man can marry another man. So we're quite liberal. There's still pockets of homophobia. So, you know, you'll people still experience that. And we've still got a long way to go. But, you know, to get a response like that from an American company still seemed quite shocking and quite just really out of sorts. Was that something you were you'd ever experienced before? Just as a journalist, have you gotten because I know I've gotten hate mail, you know, as a black woman and, and as a woman. And but I imagine, you know, being open you also might have experienced that just in general. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, as a as a white male, I think I get away with. You know, I, I I hate to think what you what you the sort of male you'd get. You know, so generally, if I get any sort of abuse, it is around sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's generally the thing that I'd be targeted for. But it's been pretty minimal. I mean, I was in the reason that this company found out I was gay is that when we were debating the civil union bill and the gay marriage bill. I was in a relationship with a guy then, and so they obviously Googled that and found that, and that's why they targeted me. Mm. But, you know, back in New Zealand when that article was out, I didn't really experience any um, – there wasn't much negative negativity around it. It was fairly – I was actually really surprised at how fine that was. And and in the documentary, you, you mentioned that, like, you, you, at first you didn't really take it seriously. You are just like – you didn't. It seemed like you didn't feel no. like offended. You were just very confused. Yeah. Well, it was just so. It was so extreme, yeah. and you you had to laugh because here is this company that makes specifically man on man tickling videos, and they're being homophobic, right. and and that just was so extreme. I had to laugh. Yeah. So why 
you're a journalist and this mm. is the first film you've ever made. Mm. Why a documentary and not say mm. like a short segment on Nightline or that sort of thing? Yeah, well, it, it was going to be a short story. Like my plan was to get the organizer. I'd say Skype the organizer, Jane, who lives in L.A., um, and then I would talk to a competitor from New Zealand. You know, I'd, I'd talk to them about what it was like, uh, you know, what the money was like, you know, what this tickling sport is about. But when I got that feedback, I was like, okay, there's something else going on here. Like mm-hmm. this company, there's something up. There's something going on. So I started emailing them back and forth. And because it just sort of lent itself to blogging because I got these email chains back and forth and I just started publishing them. And people seemed to really for want of a better word, sort of enjoy the back and forth between us and also finding out that tickling was a thing. Right. And so those blogs kind of progressed. And then Jane and Brian Media hired lawyers. They, they got a lawyer in New York and a lawyer in Auckland, New Zealand, and they both wrote me letters saying, stop what you're doing. You know, you're defaming us just by publishing this correspondence. And so then I thought, okay, there the really is something up. And then the time that I thought it was, you know, realistically was a good time to start shooting a documentary is when Jane O'Brien said, okay, obviously you're still writing these blogs. We're going to send three representatives from America to New Zealand to tell you why you shouldn't make a film. And that's when, A, there was something to film, and Mm -hmm. B, it was just such an extreme, obviously there was more to the tale. And it seemed to lend itself, because, you know, tickling also is such a visual thing, and there's all this other strange stuff going on, I just thought, you know, this could be a good documentary. And, you know, Dylan Reeve, my collaborator on this, you know, he agreed, and so we sort of went into it together. Right. And, I mean, from the beginning, as you note, um, you you were getting lots of threats and, and legal threats, and I don't know if you ever actually got any, like death threats or anything. It didn't quite go that far. It was always it was always sort of just veiled financial threats. Right, so, you right. know, when when the three men came over, the three representatives came to New Zealand, they'd sort of say things like, you know, you know, that you don't get dangled out of buildings anymore, but, you know, you, you know they don't have to because they've got lawyers and you'll just lose your house right. kind of thing. So, it was all sort of financial threats. As these kept going on and and then, you know, Kevin Clark, who was one of the video producers who flew in in that uh, initial meeting, he sort of become this sort of uh, very large figure in the saga of Tickled. He um, does. But, like, when you were making the documentary, like, what were you thinking in terms of, like, obviously there's a curiosity. Like, you, you, you were curious. You're a journalist. That's yeah. a thing. But like, who did you think the audience would be for this documentary? And, you know, did you, as it went along, did you feel as though you were sort of doing some sort of greater cause than just your curiosity, whether it's representing the people who didn't have a voice? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it early on, we found all these domain names owned by the same outfit that ran janeabryanmedia.com. So we found that a lot of those websites were just people's names. And on some of those websites, they were basically websites that were doxing tickling participants. So it was their tickling video, but also a lot of lies about them and a lot of defamatory comments and their phone number and address and all this personal information about them. So what we saw very early on while we were being sort of, I guess, cyber bullied for want of a better word, is that some of the tickling participants were experiencing the same thing Mm. by the same company that hired them to make the tickling videos. And we started talking to some of them and basically started hearing these stories about how 
the tickling competition was fine. You know, they they went to LA and they were tickled. But if they did something wrong, if they, you know, stopped taking part in the competition or didn't want to come back to LA to do another another round, then Jane and Brian would just turn on them and suddenly all their personal information would be online. Their tickling video would be sent to their grandma and their girlfriend and their boss and everything else. And that was a big motivating factor because a lot of these guys we spoke to online seemed quite scared. They didn't know where to turn. They didn't know who Jane was. Right. And so that was a big motivating factor as well. Yeah. I mean, there's this huge manipulation that's going on. It has a very... Well, I'm. Is it were is it only men involved with this? Yeah, with Jane O'Brien, it's only men. Okay, you know, and oh, occasionally there'll be a girl um, tickling them, like a girlfriend or something. But generally, mm-hmm. it's just men tickling men. Whereas, of course, as we delved into this, we found out that tickling, you know, as probably obvious to many people, it's a fetish. It's just something I hadn't thought about before. Right. Um, it's under the guise here of a not being a fetish. It's a tickling competition. But, of course, online, there's tickling for everyone. You know, there's women tickling women, there's women tickling men, there's men tickling women. It's just, it's all on. I mean, that that's one of the things. So Jane O'Brien is all men, and, and it seems young men who a lot of them are in very they're all ready to begin with in precarious financial situations and so they're desperate and they need the money and what i found interesting was yes you had someone like Kevin Clark who was the video producer who you know confronted you guys head on and was very adamant about you can't be doing this and he was sort of the face i think one of the guys TJ that you talked to he he was like actually approached by Kevin himself but like the person who is ostensibly dangling the strings is is a woman and i feel like there's this very interesting dynamic here like do you wonder if had this been like run by a man do you think these men would have been as willing to partake? Totally. I mean, I think, and that that was something we were really curious about as well, because, you know, when you go to a competitive tickling shoot, you meet, all the people that meet you are all men. So, you know, Kevin's producing, Marco's taking your still photos, and there's a young production assistant as well. But Jane is running the competition. You know, it's Jane who's um, ultimately emailing you confirmation for the trip. She's the one that's saying, you know, thanks for taking part in the competition. Here's your money. So for a lot of these guys, they're straight heterosexual as they come men, you know. So they've got sporting backgrounds. Uh, they're, 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 they're kind of the audience that Jane wants. And I think Jane knows that and, you know, tries to make it out like it is there's nothing homosexual about it. It's a, it's a sport. And, you know, and I think a lot of them feel more confident going in there knowing that it's a woman because that makes it less gay. Right. But then you never – no one ever sees Jane. No so one ever sees Jane. Like, and that's something you know, very early on because, I mean, everyone, yeah. you know, in anything sort of a bit devious and a bit sort of odd online, you always sort of think in the back of your head, okay, it's a dude behind it, right? Always. Right. It's some guy sitting behind a keyboard. And so that was always in the back of our minds. You know, it's this Jane you never meet. She had a stock image online. There were no obvious photos of Jane. Mm-hmm. And these other women that worked for the company, um, Debbie Kuhn, there was a Gertrude, they all seemed, I mean, even when I say their names, they don't sound like real names, you know? Right. And none of them had photos. So we were all, I mean, that was part of what propelled us on the journey as well as going, okay, we're not sure if Jane exists. We're not sure if Debbie exists. There's a lot of all men fronting it on the ground. 
it's probably a guy behind the whole thing as well. Right. I'm, I'm glad you said that because maybe it's just like I mentioned earlier, catfish, and I've watched a lot of catfish. And oh, same. Yeah. 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 And, and the whole time I was just like, this can't be – it can't be a woman. Or if it if it is, it's like, oh, this plays into – I don't know if I would say stereotypes, but it kind of gives us this uh, feel of of. Um, I think at one point one of her clients calls calls her a dominatrix. Like it plays into this idea of a woman who's just like a total bitch. Like it plays yeah. like and and totally. Across, it's like a character. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Oh, it's. I I was so. I mean, I think we can spoil it at this point. But like, I, I think yeah. Yeah. Spoilers coming up. <laughs> uh, yes, spoilers, but. So it turns out that these names, uh, Debbie and Jane, and then also we learn of an earlier woman, uh, yes. Terry DeSisto, um, who is – are they're all linked to the same person, David, they, uh, De- David D'Amato, um, who is, I guess, the son – who was the son of a big corporate lawyer in New York. And, yes. Yeah, and had a lot of legal troubles but somehow managed to escape them with minimal, uh, you know, reprimand. And to just think of him pulling these strings and and putting on the guise of a woman, uh, I, yeah, I don't even. It's it's just it kind of made my skin crawl. Yeah, I mean, what what boggled you know our minds about this, and I think you know Dylan would agree with me, is that you know we. As we were looking into Jane and Brian, we found out that, you know, back in the 90s, there was this other female online called Terry DeSisto or Terry Tickle who loved getting young men to tickle each other and send VHS tapes and and pay them really good money. Mm -hmm. Sounded a lot like Jane. And also what we found is that Terry would also love getting vengeance if any of these men stopped tickling each other. So it's the same pattern. So it all leads back to this guy who... You know, he back in the nineties, uh, one of the, one of the ways he'd take revenge is that he would set young men up for various sort of spamming activities. So at one point, he wiped out a whole lot of university servers trying to set up the student. And back in the nineties, that was a serious thing. Like your whole university network goes out, and it's all linked back to your email address. And you're a student. You know, you're going to have people at the university knocking on your door. So that's what he that's essentially what got him back in the 90s as he was doing doing that. But the tickling never really came out. You know, he was never punished in any way for what he had put these young men through as far as the revenge went. Mm. So, you know, served some time and just kept going and that's where, you know, that's where we came in and sort of discovered that this had never stopped and it was just this ongoing thing. It was also interesting, you know, towards the end of the the film, you uh, I think you called his his stepmother or his former yes, stepmother. His stepmother. Um and she mentions that she kind of she understood she knew that he had been uh had multiple personalities or not necessarily a disorder, but like he was known for having all of these aliases and that yes. sort of thing. It I, it weirdly reminded me for some reason of like the end of Psycho where like they're trying to describe Norman Bates and the fact that, you know, he dresses up like his mother. Like it's not quite the same, but like I got these sort of very Hitchcockian, this Hitchcockian feel too. Yeah, I mean, we wanted film. to, you know, I, and I've, I've got to be careful musing on anyone's kind of, anything too much because there's already been a a couple of defamation suits against (laughs) me in the film so I have to be a little bit careful about how I talk about things but you know I think what that call with the stepmom does is it does kind of give you a bit more of a 
a three-dimensional view of this person and why they're sort of perhaps why they're they're doing what they're doing because up until that point in the film you know we're dealing with someone who doesn't have friends doesn't have um, a lot of family around them and so there's no one to really get into his personality and why he might be like that so I think she offered up some ideas on on why we're dealing with this person and why they're doing this stuff and why they've been doing it for you know over 20 years right and David has confronted you yeah I mean we uh, we meet him on the street at the end of the film and you know I, I don't know if meets the right word we talk briefly oh, um, yes, but you right. know since since the films come out I mean he we were very surprised when he turned up to our LA premiere a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and he was in the theater and uh, I wasn't there. I was at the New York premiere, but Dylan was in L.A. He and Kevin were both there, correct? Yeah, they yeah. were all there. Marco was there. Yeah. Um, some of the Tick Lees were there. It was like a big, you know, all the main characters from the film were suddenly in the theater, which made it a really bizarre experience for the audience at the end when they realized that these people had been watching the film. I mean, David D'Amato watched Tickles eating popcorn, you know, <laughs> just watching a film with him in it, you know. So... At the end, um, he stayed for the Q&A and Dylan handed him the microphone right at the end and said, you know, do you have anything to say since, you know, since this film's come out? We wanted to talk to you this whole time. So if you want to talk, you know, talk. And he basically just proceeded to threaten Dylan with more legal action and saying, you know, you, you know, your lawyer's great, but you need a better lawyer for what's coming. Yeah, I mean, that was all caught on video. I watched a little bit of it. Some of it's on the, the Facebook page for the, the website or for the for the film. Um, one of them, I think, is like almost an hour long. Like, it's long. I mean, <laughs> it's, long. it's the Q. I mean, Kevin comes in the beginning and confronts Dylan and, and Kevin's really worked up because he was unhappy with the way we'd put the film together. Uh, and then we have the Q&A and Kevin's interrupting. And then at the end, D'Amato talks. So it's a long. It's almost like this little mini sequel in a way. What has the reaction been from the Ticklees, like TJ or the the ones who appear in the film? Yeah, I think TJ. I spoke to TJ the other day. He, um, I think he finds he's really happy that you know he's given a voice to a lot of people that couldn't really talk or were too scared to talk. Hmm. Um, he still doesn't like watching his tickling videos. <laughs> doesn't you know sort of sees those? I think and cringes a little bit. Yeah, but he's you know he's happy with the result, you know, and we're hearing now from a lot of other people involved in the tickling world of competitive tickling that stretches back, you know, 20 years who have seen the film now and they're going, oh, that's that thing that I did 12 years ago or that's that thing that happened to me a year and a half ago. So that's been really interesting hearing from all these people that experienced this thing and they weren't sure what had happened at the time. Mm-hmm. What I mean, the the ironic thing, I guess, is the fact that, like, in order for him, someone like TJ, to get a voice, he also had to amplify the videos that he didn't want to be seen in the first place by putting them in this documentary. But I guess if it's for the greater good or for, like, I guess, sort of in a way just feeling better about what happens. Well, it's almost just providing context because, you know, prior to this, his videos had been, you know, on a website with his name, with his just a whole lot of lies about him, basically, and his phone number and everything else. Mm. So I think him being in this film where it was in context of what had happened made it okay. You know, it wasn't suddenly this video that was, you know, some of these ticklees have had their videos put on gay porn sites. Mm. And, you know, that's what what is 
irritating and annoying about this whole situation is when it goes in that direction. Has your view on the world of tickling as a fetish or as a competitive sport, has it changed since when you first started? Yeah, I mean, in in the film, I've, I've, you know, we meet some tickling fetishists who do it very openly. They're like, you know, I run a tickling website and I pay people to tickle and it goes online and they everyone yeah, it's very clear and in the open but i guess you know it's it's very tempting i think to look at anything you don't fully understand and sort of giggle at it a little bit but i think in in meeting you know richard who is a tickling fetishist in florida like he's come on the you know our little um tour that we've been doing with the q and a's and he's doing q and a's and we get on great and like i've realized that you know Everyone is into something, and as long as everyone's open about it and they're not harassing people over it, then it's it's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and Rich is one of the most, for want of a better word, he's one of the most normal people I've met. Like, he's so down to earth and fine. He just likes tickling. Yeah, you know. I don't know. Tickling just to me, it's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> like oh, there's a very being, yeah. There's, there's, it's I'm the same, and I find I don't like being tickled, and so I'll watch. You know, I'll watch Richard tickle one of his models and I'll feel uncomfortable. But, I mean, that's just my personal reaction to it. You know, I'm fine with him doing it. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, the main thing I find so fascinating with this is that a lot of the power that D'Amato has over these young men is the fact that for them, they, they come from places in the world or in America where being gay is one of the worst things that you can be. So they're from either, you know, they're they're from... Red states where, you know, not particularly liberal and that is used against them, which I just think is a really interesting dynamic. So they've got no money and they've got that in their background as well. You know, if these if these young men being tickled were openly gay or they were from a liberal environment where being called gay wasn't such a a damaging thing for them, then they Demata wouldn't have the same power over them. It's a really interesting dynamic. Like he specifically seeks people who are athletic, straight, and from backgrounds that would indicate that being gay isn't great. So he uses that against them. Right. So I find that interesting. Like if we lived in a world without homophobia, a lot of the damage that this person could do wouldn't exist. And I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, TJ, one of the things that the, the problems that he had was that his uh, – Jane or whoever was the one who told his employer that like he's doing all this homoerotic stuff and I mean on to some level like for someone like him it might be like embarrassing but then the fact that so like the employer would then like cut him off because of what he did and it probably even goes beyond just being homo homoerotic or seeming gay it's also just the fact that we're so we're still so very uptight about sex in general and, and just completely like, anything that like reeks of of sex is, is just... oh and it's fascinating to me i mean that's that's I, i'm so used to that in america like i'm fascinated by how just when you look at censorship in new zealand for instance how uptight this country is with anything sexual whereas violence is totally fine totally fine like, go crazy with your guns and your violence, but, oh, if there's anything sexual, you know, let's, oh, it's, you know, it, it's everyone it, tenses up. It's a really unusual approach. It's a very, it's, it's America. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd. Did you ever encounter, like, from the people you were interviewing, any, like, sort of off-color comments or, or things that they said while describing what they were experiencing? Because you did talk, you, you, I think you make a good point that they are – they uh, these these guys were very straight and very macho in a way like kind of recoil if not 
consciously, subconsciously from the idea of something that's even remotely sort of gay? Like, was there any moment while you were interviewing people where you kind of felt that coming from oh, them? Oh, there's certain, there's certain people I spoke to off the record. Just there are a lot of other stories, you mm-hmm. know, that, that, you know, we didn't interview everyone because everyone didn't want to be on camera. Right. But yeah, certainly stories where people were, you know, these some young athletic men were, I, I don't, not, not, I don't know how to describe it. Um, a few comments where they sort of catch themselves, where they'd be like, you know, and this made this video made me look gay, but I'm not gay, but I don't have a problem with it. But you know, sort of catching yeah. themselves, but just that general idea that, and it was interesting for them as well because I guess if they knew me, they'd know that you know I'd been in a relationship with a man, so maybe they were not wanting to insult me. But certainly, you could see it in the back of their minds, you know, that a lot of the, if, if these young people are being called out and this. But I mean, I think. Just when your video suddenly ends up on a gay porn site, you know that I, I expect that reaction. Like right. you're not being unreasonable. Do you yeah. know what I mean? If yeah. you're if you've got a girlfriend and you're happily living, and then suddenly you've got a tickling video on a gay porn site, I understand your problem with that, and I don't have a problem with your problem with that. Even on a regular porn site, I'd be like, <laughs> what is what is going on? You know, completely. Yeah. No, it's the it's the context of everything, and that that's how these videos are twisted and sort of used against these young men. So you did, you actually were interviewed by one of my colleagues, Dan Coyce, you and and Dylan for for Slate uh, online. And um, one of the things you mentioned was that this was like the most investigative sort of reporting you've done as a, as a journalist. How do you feel this experience has changed you? Have, do you feel it's made you even an even better journalist? What did you learn while doing this? I mean, I think we learned, I mean, both Dylan and I hadn't really worked on such a long form project. Like we all, we generally, we work in television, you know, he works in post-production and I work in, you know, in news. So very quick turnarounds. So I think we've learned about the joy of persistence and how great and frustrating that can be Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it probably has you know there's a lot of tricks you learn about sort of following a long form story and ways to get you know ways to to track down contacts and you know meet people and just the logistics of shooting a film you know there's a million things we learn Uh, and there are bits that are very frustrating and there are bits that are really rewarding I'm glad we did it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel really proud of what we've got. But I'm in this unusual situation at the moment where the story feels like it hasn't stopped. You know, like Jane and Brian Media is still very active. They're coming to screenings. There's been, you know, a couple of lawsuits. And so I feel I, I wonder how long this will go on for before I sort of need to move on to something else. And I'd like to move on to other projects. Mm-hmm. I mean, how long do you do you? How much more do you think you can stand? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out at the moment. My final question, this is a podcast about representation and bringing stories to the screen by people who don't necessarily have a voice or who are often misrepresented. When can you think of the last time you felt like really represented on screen? I, I mean... I, it's a difficult one to answer because I feel like I'm probably the most oh, – as, as a white male, I feel like I'm the most over-representative <laughs> re- represented person, you know, on earth. That's um, a very fair fair point to make. <laughs> um, as, but, I mean, as a, I mean, I'm bisexual um, in the film. I think everyone assumes I'm gay because Jane O'Brien Media called me gay. Yeah. But I, I don't feel – I don't really feel like I don't see enough bisexuals on screen. I mean, I, I don't know. It's – I feel fairly lucky, I think, and fortunate. And I think there's other minorities that I think need 
to be on screen a lot more than than you know my type needs to be on screen for one of a better word. I really appreciate that answer. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, David. Uh, no, to- thanks for having me. It's been a weird, a very strange couple of years. Yes. Hopefully, it's not another strange couple more. At least, not for this topic. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> And that's a wrap. Thanks again to John for debating the merits of Sausage Party's ethnic humor with me, and to David for digging deep into the gender and sexuality issues within Tickled. You'll find a link to some of the many things we discussed today in the show notes, and check back for our next episode in two weeks. And please, if you like this conversation and want to hear more, rate us on iTunes, and we'd love to hear from you. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. The music you're hearing right now is performed by the awesome San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. 